Reaching through it when I came here in, in early July or late June, so that, that's why. Page 32 in the back of the blue. We'll read those in just a minute. First, we'll hear from God's Word. 1 Corinthians 10, 14 through 22. God's holy word, our authority and faith in life, please give your attention to its reading. Apostle Paul says, Therefore, my dear friends, flee from idolatry. I speak to sensible people. Judge for yourselves what I say. Is not the cup of thanksgiving for which we give thanks a participation in the blood of Christ? And is not the bread that we break a participation in the body of Christ? Because there is one loaf, we who are many are one body. For we all partake of the one loaf. Consider the people of Israel. Do not those who eat the sacrifices participate in the altar? Do I mean then that a sacrifice offered to an idol is anything, or that an idol is anything? No. But the sacrifices of pagans are offered to demons, not to God. And I do not want you to be participants with demons. You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons too. You cannot have a part in both the Lord's table and the table of demons. Are we trying to arouse the Lord's jealousy? Are we stronger than he? Grass withers and the flower fades. The word of our God endures forever. Beginning with question 65 then, back of our blue Psalter hymnals, says this and we'll respond and read the answers together. You confess that by faith alone you share in Christ and all his blessings. Where does that faith come from? The Holy Spirit produces it in our hearts by the preaching of the Holy Gospel and confirms it through our use of the Holy Sacraments. What are sacraments? Sacraments are holy signs and seals for us to see. They were instituted by God so that by our use of them, He might make us understand more clearly the promise of the Gospel and might put his seal on that promise. And this is God's gospel promise, to forgive our sins and give us eternal life by grace alone, because of Christ's one sacrifice finished on the cross. Are both the word and the sacraments then intended to focus our faith on the sacrifice of Jesus Christ on the cross as the only ground of our salvation? Right. In the gospel, the Holy Spirit teaches us, and through the holy sacraments, he assures us that our entire salvation rests on Christ's one sacrifice for us on the cross. How many sacraments did Christ institute in the New Testament? Two, baptism and the Lord's Supper. It would be nice if all of us were consistent people. And by that I mean we would be able to look at every situation that comes up, look at every decision that we're supposed to make, remember what is important, remember what we're supposed to do, act in accordance with all of that, and make the right decision. Choose the right course of action. Unfortunately, human beings, just because of the way we are, we act differently in different situations. We don't always come through. We don't always do what is right. I read a blog post this week by a pastor that described the decisions we make kind of like a board meeting that's going on inside of our heads. There's a big wooden table and nice big leather chairs, and there are 
all kinds of different versions of us that are haggling over what the decision is going to be. Who we are in public, who we are in private, our work self, our reflective self, our weekend self, our greedy self, all of these kinds of things. And what action will we take? Of course, as is often the case at contentious big board meetings for companies or anything like that, the person who speaks the loudest, the one who refuses to give up, these are the people that usually get our way. This can be true for many of us as we walk through this life, even though we are called to live in thankfulness to God and in obedience to Christ for our salvation. Though we have been given so great a salvation, full and free, founded upon the Son of God, we fail to live up to the new life we are called to and the calling which God has given to us. This pastor pointed out that when we receive Christ, as Lord and Savior, too often what happens is we think about Jesus entering that room and having a seat at the table. What he was saying is that what needs to happen is that Jesus comes into that room, clears it out, and he becomes the one who makes all of the decisions. He kills our old desires and he gives us new ones. He destroys our old public and private selves and creates new ones, all which seek the glory of God and the exaltation of Christ in all things. This is how we flee idolatry. Whenever we act seeking something other than the glory of God, ultimately, we are playing with the dangers of idolatry. When we remove God as the focal point of our worship and put something there in his place, this is the temptation we have to fall into a modern version of idolatry. But if we belong to God, we cannot belong to any other thing and we cannot act like we belong to any other thing. God is a jealous God, as we see from scripture. He will not share his fame, his glory, or his worship with another. The sacraments place us on the right track in these ways for a couple of reasons. The first is that they remind us that God has acted on our behalf and for our good in the gospel. And secondly, the sacraments give us a spiritual blessing and a growth in grace. Since God has commanded that we observe these ordinances and make use of them, we can be assured that there we will find his blessing. And there we will find the ministry of God's grace. He has commanded us to do so. And so we come to them, we come to the sacraments expecting a blessing from God. Over the past few weeks we've discussed about how believing in Christ, trusting in him, makes us right with God. This is the commissioned message that has been given to the church. The one that's to be proclaimed throughout all of the world. And tonight we remind ourselves that the the sacraments are the other primary place where we find both the activity of the Holy Spirit and the blessing of God. Thus we turn to this passage in 1 Corinthians that focuses upon the importance of the Lord's Supper. It is there at the Supper that God assures us that we belong to Him and where we proclaim to ourselves, to each other, and to the whole world that we belong to God. And since we belong to God, we ought to do three things as we look at this passage tonight. We ought to flee idolatry, we ought to rejoice in the blessing of Christ, and we ought to focus on the bond of God's covenant people. First, then, we are called to flee idolatry. 
Paul gives a a straightforward command in verse 14, flee idolatry, and he unpacks this command in the second half of the passage. It's important to notice, though, that his command to flee idolatry shows that it is a real problem for the Christians here in Corinth. It's not a hypothetical. It's not like doing a tornado drill. When I was in elementary school, I grew up in in Minnesota, and we would do these uh, probably once a month, because up there we were kind of at the top of Tornado Alley, and we would do them quite often, but I was never in school when we had to enact all of these things. It was always a hypothetical for me. But this is not a drill for Paul. The destructive power of a tornado is rather already among the Corinthians, and there are some who have fallen prey to idolatry. How is this true? As we go through the book of 1 Corinthians, there are Christians who are not only eating meat that has been sacrificed in a pagan altar, but there are also some who are going to religious feasts in pagan temples and partaking in them and eating the food as part of a religious ritual. Strange for us to go back and think about those situations, but that's what was happening. Christians were going to these religious feasts and partaking, eating of the food as part of the celebration. Paul wants to address this issue and wants to show them how this brings the Corinthians close to the dangers of idolatry. In order to do this, Paul shows the example of Old Testament Israel and eating food that was offered at the altar. The temple in Israel was the center of life for the Jews in the Old Testament. It was the place where they dealt with their sins. It was the center of their religious and worshiping life. All of this, of course, was pointing forward to Jesus. It was in types and shadows showing the Israelites how ultimate forgiveness of sin was going to take place. But to imagine them in their time, in their day-to-day lives, it was the temple where they went to deal with their sins. And with all of the myriads of sacrifices and offerings that were offered in the temple, there was only one offering of which you could eat in the Old Testament temple, and that was the peace offering. The peace offering had a specific function for the Israelites. It was, in a sense, just like a Thanksgiving meal. Thanksgiving here, we gather together with close friends and family to give thanks for all of the blessings of God. The peace offering was, in many ways, or the meal that followed the peace offering, was just like that. It was a giving of thanks for what God had done. Because the the sacrifices that took away sins had already taken place. And so the Israelites were giving thanks that God had washed their sins away. They ate of this peace offering and that was how they declared that they believed that what God had said had just taken place in the temple actually happened. It's how they participated in the benefits of God's forgiveness. It was a thanksgiving and it was a participation. This is why Paul says in verse 18, consider the people of Israel. Do not those who eat the sacrifices participate in the altar? Their eating of the sacrifices of the peace offering was a way to participate and enjoy all of the blessings of the altar. Not only that, but it is in the peace offering that those who eat and participate that are openly acknowledging that God is their covenant Lord. That's what this meal does. They're acknowledging as they eat of the peace offering that the God of Israel is my covenant God, my covenant king. He is the one whom I worship. He is the one whom I love. He is the one whom I seek 
in all things. He is my Savior, and he is the only one to whom I will bow down. Paul then uses this reasoning to speak to the Corinthians' situation. Would it make sense to participate in the Lord's Supper and then to go participate in a pagan ritual sacrifice and feast? Well, of course not. Why? Because it is at the Lord's table where we proclaim, and the Corinthians would proclaim, that the God of Scripture is their God alone, and Christ alone is their Savior. Therefore, they cannot go and participate in another religious ceremony that would involve giving allegiance to anyone else. Paul admits that there are no gods except God alone. An idol is nothing, which he freely admits. But he does say that the sacrifices that the pagans were offering at the time were offered to demons. In verse 20, he says this, I do not want you to be participants with demons. There were evil spiritual forces at work in these ceremonies, and therefore Paul wanted to protect them and keep them clear of such forces. This is where we ask ourselves tonight, brothers and sisters, how these principles come to bear upon our lives. This is especially important for us as we look towards gathering around the Lord's table. None of us will probably be going to a pagan ritual anytime soon, but what is the core principle that Paul is driving at here? He is driving at our fidelity to the one true God, our faithfulness to the God of Scripture, and how it is proclaimed in the supper. That's what we proclaim. Our faithfulness to the God of Scripture and how it must be lived out in our lives. That is what Paul is driving at. If you proclaim that, you have to live that out in your life. God is Lord. God is Savior. And he is the only one who is to be treated as such in our lives. He is your only God. He is your only Lord. We live in a world where sharing is one of the cardinal virtues of the new social orthodoxy. I watch Sesame Street sometimes with my daughter. It's her favorite show. And one of the things they're constantly driving at in nearly every episode is sharing. Sharing is wonderful. It's an important thing to learn. It's important to, to learn not to hold on to all of our things so tightly. My daughter has just started, she has just learned how to say mine. So we're dealing with that right now at home. She's just learned how to say that. It's an important thing to learn how to share. But not everything is meant to be shared. For example, a husband and a wife are not to love everyone the way that they love each other. Because marriage is a promise that a man and a woman will remain completely and utterly faithful to one another all of their life together. It is no wonder that God paints the relationship between himself and his people as that of a groom and a bride. He has given himself for us. He has sacrificed so much for us, and we are to give ourselves wholly and completely to him. He looks at his people like a groom looks at a bride, and he will not share his people. Therefore, as we examine ourselves, we ask, what are those things in my life that intrude upon my exclusive allegiance to the God of Scripture? 
What are those things that take away my ability to see the lordship of the triune God in my life? What are things that belong to the old self, apart from Christ, that pull us away from our allegiance to him? If we live in a way that serves the desires of the flesh over the fruit of the spirit, we are playing with the dangers of idolatry, just like the Corinthians were doing. Paul tells us that our bodies are living temples that we are to offer as a sacrifice of praise. And when we use our bodies in service to sin and the desires of our sinful nature, we give our allegiance and our worship to something other than God. Thus, Paul says that to do both is like trying to be married to two different people. It just doesn't work. You cannot give an allegiance which is meant to be a complete allegiance to two different parties. It's like trying to have two separate nine-to-five Monday through Friday jobs. Something has got to give, which is why Paul says in verse 21, you cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons too. You cannot have a part in both the Lord's table and the table of demons. Our spiritual allegiance, our worship, must go only to the God of Scripture in the name of Christ. Let us focus ourselves on that as we prepare to meet the Lord at the table. Secondly, we are called to rejoice in the blessing of Christ. All of this is a fairly serious warning by Paul. Paul ends the passage by once again reminding us that when we play with idolatry, we're playing with invoking the wrath of God. Our loyalty to him is not to be taken lightly. Thus, is Paul using fear and terror and dread to drive us to obedience? Is he cracking the whip to make us obey out of fear? Or rather, is he pointing us to the great love of God and the price that his love caused him to pay for our redemption? If we pay close attention to how Paul reminds us of our salvation in Christ, it seems more like the latter. He is pointing us to the love of God and that it is God's love which brings us to obedience and gratitude to him. This is exactly what what the sacraments do for us in our lives. And this is one of the great insights which the beloved catechism makes for us in tonight's questions and answers. They say that the sacraments are God's way of displaying for us how he makes us his own. The sacraments are holy, as it it says. Holy, visible signs and seals. They were instituted by God so that by their use, God might the more fully declare and seal to us the promise of the gospel. And this is the promise. That God graciously grants us forgiveness of sins and everlasting life because of the one sacrifice of Christ accomplished on the cross. The sacraments are how God accompanies the preaching of God's word and the declaration of the gospel. Preaching is the word that we hear. The sacraments are the word that we see. And both of these contain the beautiful promise of God. Preaching is the word that we hear. Sacraments are the word that we see. We remember that much of this passage in 1 Corinthians has dealt with the altar and the sacrifices of the temple. 
And that eating of the peace offering was a way that Old Testament Israel received an ongoing benefit of the forgiveness of sins. So Paul connects this idea to the work of Christ on the cross to remind us of this truth. That Christ's work is perfect. That Christ's work is complete. That Jesus said on the cross, it is finished. Thus in the supper we are reminded that all that we need for salvation is found in Christ. Everything that we need to be saved is found in him. Not only are we reminded of that, but we are assured of that. We read once again in the catechism, the Holy Spirit teaches us in the gospel and assures us by the sacraments that our entire salvation rests on Christ's one sacrifice for us on the cross. Thus we find that the Lord's table is not a place of dread, but a place of great rejoicing. If you live your life in constant regret and your conscience is always seared and you're filled with fear of God's wrath because you do not rightly honor God as your covenant king, then tonight is the night to return to him once again, to look to Jesus in faith, for he is everything that we need, to trust in his sacrifice on the cross for his people. And then come once again, whenever the next time is for you, come once again to the table to share in the blessings of Christ, which he finished for us on the cross. Paul says that this is what happens in the supper. In verse 16, he says this, Is not the cup of thanksgiving for which we give thanks a participation in the blood of Christ? And is not the bread that we break a participation in the body of Christ? This is how we participate in an ongoing way, day by day, in what Christ does for us. And it is by God's sustaining grace that we are not only made new, but we are kept until the day of Christ Jesus. How does God get you from cradle to grave in Christ? How does he get you to the end of life? By his sustaining grace. And he does that through the preaching of the word, the administration of the sacraments, the word that we see, The word that we hear, they give us God's sustaining grace and his promise sustains us. We are constantly to come back to the waters of mercy and the banquet table of God's grace in Christ. As we close then, we focus on the bond of God's covenant people. Paul reminds us in this passage that the idea of being the people of God is not an individual thing, but a corporate idea. The covenant people is a collective. It's something to be seen in that way. Verse 17 says this, There is one loaf, and we who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one loaf. Together we proclaim, when we come together for worship, and especially when we gather around the table, that God is our covenant Lord and King. And it reminds us that our sin is not only a private matter, but something that affects the corporate people of God. We all, as part of the body of Christ, ought to desire that our brothers and sisters would flee idolatry, that they would experience victory over sin in their life, in order that our communion with Christ would be more healthy, would be honoring to Him. Lastly, the the supper is not just a private time between you and God alone. It is a public time. We gather around the Lord's table 
It is a time to be with God's people as they commune together with Christ. It is there that we are reminded that Christ died to make all of us his own. This is why it is important to have private preparation before we come to the table so that we can come and celebrate in a public way. It's hard for us to do in many ways, but when we celebrate the Lord's Supper, we ought to take notice of those around us and to give thanks that God has saved the people sitting next to you in the pews and the people sitting in the sanctuary along with you and all the people around the world whom Christ has redeemed. Give thanks for all of them as well. It is a place where God intends his people to take great joy in what he has done for all of us. And so I encourage people to take notice of those around you when you're celebrating the Lord's Supper. Don't let it be a time where you only focus on yourself. And it's important to do that. But to look around you and to give thanks for all that God has done in the lives of the people around you. The dinner table is intended to be a place where a family takes great joy in one another. And that is a time and a place that ought to be cherished and guarded carefully. And it is no different with the Lord's table. We come together to take joy in our God and to take joy in one another. For we are one body and we participate together in the benefits of our great Savior. And our salvation is that it has come to bear upon all of us. And so we thank God for what he has done, not only in our lives, but in all of God's people. Therefore, God calls us to flee idolatry, to rejoice in the blessing of Christ, and to focus on the bond which we share together as God's covenant people. That's the meaning of the supper. God calls us to to do all of those things as we reflect upon the greatness of our God and the grace that we find in Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the sacraments, all which point us to your promises. We want to observe them rightly so that we might rightly expect the blessing to come from you. Father, be with us as we seek to navigate this life faithfully, as we seek to honor you in our lives, in our churches. We give thanks for all that you have done. Give us a blessing now as we go off into this week. Help us to, by the power of your spirit, honor you, to glorify you in our lives, to offer our bodies as living sacrifices. Help us to flee idolatry and all forms of sin, not because by it we achieve salvation, but because we glorify you in the salvation you have already given to us. We pray all these things in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.